I'd never really read a novel that tried to put readers right on mudflats and put them right down in, into Puget Sound as opposed to being a backdrop. So even though I didn't know what the premise was going to be, I didn't know who the characters were going to be, I just knew that I had a great place. I had a setting that I thought could be powerful. Welcome to our 2022 podcast series. And beginning with this episode, EK on the Go is now Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. We're looking forward to a good year ahead, and we'll be continuing our conversations with people involved in celebrating, preserving, and creating places that matter in our area. This year, we'll also be hearing from a variety of local artists, writers, and musicians. Today's conversation will be with one of the area's most acclaimed living novelists. His works have garnered popular following as well as received critical praise. The author's body of work stems from his passion and experiences in four distinct locales. The mudflats off Olympia, Washington, the U.S.-Canadian border near Blaine, urban Seattle at the time of the Seattle World's Fair, and finally the inland waterways of the Puget Sound and the boating culture there that connects all of these places. Fiction can be a window into places, and our guest today has asserted that a sense of place and setting are some of the most important elements of his writing. And while his characters are fictional, the places they inhabit have been carefully studied through first-hand living combined with meticulous research. Our themes today include how the craft of depicting real places and eras against fictional characters provides creative opportunity. Finally, we'll look at what happens when we slow down and pay close attention to our surroundings, whether they're the beautiful natural locales of the Pacific Northwest or the dynamic brilliance of our cities. And stick around at the end of the conversation We'll learn about the author's current work in progress. Let's, drive Let's welcome our guest today, author Jim Lynch. Hi, Jim. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. So you're originally from Seattle? That's right, yes. And I read somewhere that you dreamed as a teenager of becoming an author. Is that uh, fictitious or true? There's some truth to that. It, it was kind of the uh, process of elimination that I, I realized I couldn't become a professional athlete, and then I realized <laughs> I couldn't become a rock star. And so uh, the next best thing seemed like being an author. And I was particularly drawn to certain authors at a young age, and it, uh, it looked strangely uh, doable and fun. So tell me about the authors that you loved as a child and as a teen. The first one that, that really hit me was uh, uh, third grade, uh, Wilson Rawls' uh, Where the Red Fern Grows. And our, our teacher read it to us, and at the end of the book, uh, they surprised us by having Wilson Rawls appear in our library. And he was this big, tall, strapping man uh, from the Ozarks of Oklahoma with an accent so thick we couldn't understand him. But he was kind of my first introduction into uh, an author and that, that humans actually write these books that captivated me. Where was that? Like, where were you in school? And what a, what was, a brilliant gift that your teacher gave you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, that was uh, Lake Ridge Elementary on, on the south end of Mercer Island. Wow. Yeah. And then any other um, authors that you loved? Um, well, in, in my teens, I, I, I uh, uh, fell in love with uh, Tom Robbins's uh, uh, wacky novels and, and Ken Kesey's brilliant novels. Uh, and what drew me to both of them was that they were writing about the, the lush, bounteous Western Washington, Western Oregon area that I was growing up in. And so I, just, I was just startled that they could capture the area so well and build this great literature based on the only world that I was familiar with. Mm. When you graduated from the University of Washington, you began a career in journalism? 
That's right. Yeah, I started out in uh, uh, Alaska and then uh, uh, Virginia and Washington, D.C. But uh, yeah, I chased newspaper jobs because I, I realized I couldn't immediately become a novelist. And, and so I just wanted to uh, find jobs that, that I could write at and develop my skills. But uh, I thought it was going to be a temporary thing, you know, and that I was going to get back to my secret dream of writing novels, which I rarely ever said aloud because it made me sound crazy. And then you wound up through your journalist career back in Washington State? Yeah, I, I came back from the East. I came to Spokane and then to Portland and then to Olympia, where I've been for most of the last 25 years. Okay, and then when was the liminal moment when you were able to make that change from journalism into being an author? Uh, July of 2004. Wow. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I took a, a leave of absence and... Uh, wrote the first half of The Highest Tide, and then uh, as soon as I sold that, I quit my newspaper job and have been making stuff up ever since. So for a while then you were doing two things, you were writing and then... Right, I, I, used to, I used to write uh, um, fiction in the morning before I'd go to work, uh, just because I was afraid that otherwise I would kind of lose the notion of the differences between the two crafts. And, and, and in hindsight, I, I wish I still felt that much energy to be able to do that. So it's interesting how journalism shows up in your works right. and with incredible irony. And it's not demonized as a career, but it's definitely parodied in a way. And each of the novels that I have read, there's a journalist and the journalist seems to kind of influence reality, but kind of make it up and interact with the main character in not always positive ways. It's funny you say that because uh, um, that's kind of what my journalist friends say with a smirk on their face that uh, uh, now you get out of journalism and you make fun of us. But uh, I guess that I felt like that for the most part, I've basically told it as accurately as I can. I mean, there there is a lot of uh, bumbling and guessing and and awkwardness to being a journalist who shows up at a scene and tr has to learn a whole lot of information really fast and get it all straight and clear and and uh, without bias and so on. It, it's it's hard work, but uh, there is some comic aspect of it that I didn't want to leave out. So, did you bring anything into the studio today? I, I did bring something into the studio. I'm so curious what it is. <laughs> well, it, it uh, went through an awkward process of elimination here because uh, I just moved from Olympia to Vashon, and so most of my life is in boxes. And so when you said, you know, bring something that's of serious value to me, for whatever reason, I, I couldn't seem to locate anything, and, I, and I've kind of become less attached to things after having to move so many things. And so then I, I um, decided that I was going to... Uh, bring a harmonica, and, and I don't play the harmonica, but I've always thought of myself as a potential blues harmonica player. And so I hold on to it as, as kind of the notion of the fact that I can constantly, you know, teach myself new things. But then I listened to your, your podcast with Mark Holson, uh -huh. uh, and, uh, and he had his grandpa's harmonica as the thing that he brought in, and uh -huh. he could actually play it. And then I felt like that would be, I would be so second fiddle to Mark that I, <laughs> instead I brought in um, a note from my daughter. Um, my daughter lives in, in Brooklyn and uh, she's a podcast producer and host back there actually. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Can we give a shout out to her? Any podcasts that she? Yeah. Uh, so her, her name is Grace Lynch and she has a podcast out now about climate change, uh, trying to look at climate change in different light. And it's called As She Rises. Uh, huh. It's with the Wonder Media Network. Yeah, wow. You can get it anywhere. But um 
so she lives in Brooklyn and she, she's our only child and, and she always, you know, wishes we could, we could be together. So she gave us a, a box of all of her little sayings that she says and, and so that if any time we missed her, we could just reach in and grab oh. a, a note from her. And so this note is, uh, uh, Dad, you've got this, deep breaths. And so, you know, it's up right above my uh, desk when I'm writing and, and uh, so, yeah, wow. that's what I brought in. Wow, yeah. very sweet. Well, let's talk about your first novel, The Highest Tide, which was published in 2005. And to me, something in all the works that you've written, they're about specific place, but also specific time. So this is a spoiler alert, but the Nisqually earthquake kind of figures as a kind of a pivotal right. moment that contributes to the drama. So I'm just kind of curious for one, you know, some novelists will tell stories about places they've never been. And the highest tide, obviously, it's, it's deeply, very carefully observed. I couldn't possibly imagine someone being able to kind of poetically tell about a place without actually having been there. But I'm just kind of curious to what extent did living in Olympia inform your narrative or the, the setting in the book? Um, yeah, in, entirely. Um, <laughs> so uh, well, I arrived in Olympia and I, and I was, uh, and, and we kind of lucked out for this fixer upper with a, with a view of. Uh, Eld Inlet, right across from Evergreen State College's nude beach. That that was our, our our setting there, and uh, it's a beautiful inlet, and and so we had access down to the the tidal flats. And when I arrived, uh, um, the tides were out in the evening, and so I was going down there with a headlamp to kind of examine what was on the tidal flats, and so that kind of alerted me to just how spectacular the setting was and how intriguing it was. So I, I ended up kayaking, sailing, and beachcombing just to get familiar with this this new area, and the more I did that, the more I realized that I'd never really read a novel that tried to put readers right on mudflats and put them right down in, into Puget Sound as opposed to being a backdrop. So even though I didn't know what the premise was going to be, I didn't know who the characters were going to be, I just knew that I had a great place. I had a setting that I thought could be powerful. Why Miles? Who's the main character? That came to me uh, in a lucky flash in that there was an article in the Olympian about these uh, three kids who had discovered a rare deep-sea fish not that far from my house. And so um, I quickly made the jump to thinking, okay, well, yeah, it would be kids that would make these discoveries because you know, uh, adults aren't either aren't paying attention or at work or, or whatever. And so I thought, what if I had this one kid who keeps making discoveries over, over a summer that uh, they get him a lot of attention, much of it unwanted? And so then this whole premise kind of emerged to me that, that uh, most of us are so oblivious to the natural world around us that a boy who simply pays attention could come across as a genius. And, uh, and that's, that's when I started to get excited about the book. And then what is it that he discovers? The big first discovery is a giant squid, which my agent initially said, uh, are you sure you want to start with a giant squid? Shouldn't we build to a giant squid? But uh, I just kind of liked the, um, you know, ripping the doors off and, and giving you uh, one of the more exotic creatures that could conceivably wash up. I mean, it, it, Olympia is connected to the Pacific Ocean, so anything that's in the Pacific could, could wash up. And so I thought I'd start big. Could it happen? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it could. I, at least I, I, I convinced myself that it could. But uh, at that point in time, uh, there had been no giant squid that had ever even been photographed alive. Since then, uh, they have. But they're incredibly uh, 
elusive uh, deep sea creatures, but uh, they're just so fun for the imagination because they're you know 30 feet or longer, including all their tentacles and uh, so on. So I liked unearthing a, a big sea monster. Were you there during the earthquake? I was, yeah. What was that like? I was a reporter at the time, and I was in downtown Seattle, and uh, I was at a press conference, a Paul Shell press conference, and I came down and just got out of the elevator, and the building was shaking, and everybody started running outside, and there was a uh, homeless man on the sidewalk shouting, God's wrath, God's wrath, God's wrath, and so, yeah, that kind of stuck with me. So that was in 2001, and then you right. wrote in 2004 and five. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So it's you kind of swoped that into the story. Right. Well, and I, and I actually, I think of the uh, novel as, the novel's kind of pre-cell phones. There's no cell phones in it. I, I kind of actually set it back further in time. So I wasn't, uh, you know, allegiant to it being 2001 or, uh-huh. yeah. Right. I mean, in some ways, Miles, the, the, the central character is, kind of a, uh, a flashback to my childhood when, when kids were more free to roam unsupervised. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I wanted is, is a boy who, who didn't have uh, helicopter parents. In fact, his parents were, were uh, tuned out to the point where, where he was just immersed in nature every day. Mm, that's wonderful. Yeah. And then let's talk about Border Songs. How did that come about? That was in 2009. Right. Well, that again is 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 uh, based around the 2001 time frame because uh, I went up there as a reporter after 9/11 and suddenly the U.S. Canadian border was was this very tense location, whereas it used to be um, uh, such a casual border. Um, and also, you used to have farming families on either side of of the border that used to help each other and and work with each other, and now it's like this invisible fence had jumped up. And so I rode around with Border Patrol agents and wrote about it as a journalist, but it, but it struck me as, as a place that would make for a great thriller, just that the setting alone was, was intriguing. And then, and then as I set into it, uh, trying to write a thriller, my kind of goofier, satirical instincts kind of took over, and I created something very different than that. But it, uh, I kind of got rolling on that book when, it, when I came up with the uh, kind of the central character, which is this Brandon Vanderkool, who's a... Uh, six foot eight, uh, semi-autistic uh, border patrol agent who's obsessed with birds, and so, uh, and in part, I, I created him because I, I was tired of uh, uh, everybody asking me how autobiographical the the small observant boy was in in the highest tide, and so I was trying to create somebody out of character. That's what I was going for. So, Brandon is not doesn't have a sense of humor, right? Yeah. Explain sort of how that plays a role in his character development. Well, he, he's on the spectrum, and so he, he kind of doesn't follow the normal social cues that that uh, uh, most people follow, and and uh, and yet he's tuned into other things in more intensity, with more intensity than uh, uh, than most people as well. So he, he he doesn't have the attention gaps, and and when, when you're and when you're a border patrol agent, you, your biggest skill, arguably, is being alert and maintaining this alertness when nothing is seemingly going on uh, day after day. And since he's so fascinated with birds, he doesn't miss anything. And so I, I was kind of creating this uh, this super agent at the same time who's who's just 
slowly trying to learn how to socialize and, and communicate with people. And, and he's got a artistic bent and a fascination with a, uh, a young Canadian woman on the other side of the border. And, and uh, I just kind of liked throwing it all in motion. And I liked having the Canadian-U.S. conflict appearing, you know, right over a, a drainage ditch that separates the two countries. And again, it, w- it was the it was the setting that that initially dazzled me. When I went up there as a reporter, I went back and forth along the border through all through all those farmlands with Mount Baker in the backdrop and, and the San Juan Islands and off to the off to the west. And I mean, Whatcom County is just one of the the glorious places in the world. And so I, I wanted to bring that whole area to, alive, and I and I wanted to play with the this you know, silly little border that we have dividing us and, and see where it took me. And then how was the novel received by Canadians? Well, it was fun. It, it was uh, more of a hit in Canada than in the States. Um, and, and part of what I found amusing was that the, uh, uh, the Canadian reviewers that would, you know, interview me were, were always kind of astonished that some American writer had taken an interest in writing Canadian characters and because and, uh, I guess that's somewhat unusual I, and and their assumption is that uh, you know we never look up that we're not even a, that we forget Canada's there mm-hmm. uh, whereas they they can't you know get away from us we're we're the big you know bear down below how did 911 sort of show up from within Canada obviously it hit the US right but i think Canada they felt an intense responsibility to protect their own people but but they also Initially, there were stories that some of the bombers came down through Canada. I remember those, yeah. Yeah. Were they true? No, I don't no. believe they were. Okay. Um, and so it was It was just kind of a, a moment of where they were dealing with their uh, neighbors who were suddenly on red alert. Yeah. And so they kind of had to match that redness as best they could at the time. Where were you living when you wrote? Were you living in Olympia? Yes. And did you go back... Um, Go back and visit the border. The border areas. As oh part yeah. Of, yeah. No, I would. I would go up. Uh, uh, as I'm kind of a research fanatic. The writing is the is the uh, is the grueling, difficult part with you know occasional wonderful days. But uh, um, research is is just about always a good day for me. And I like to err on the side of of, of doing too much of it. Um, but so tell uh, us about that process. Yeah. For border songs. Okay. Well, so I I I would actually get up there and ride around and just traverse and take notes and try to kind of, you know, bring up the, the beauty and poetry of, of the place as best I could. And then I interviewed a, a variety of people. I, I hung out on a dairy farm for multiple days where a dairy farm is being run by one, one man, one farmer, and just seeing, seeing what that workload was like and, and understanding, you know, that how hard it is to stay a small family uh, dairy farm in, in a world where you've got these massive dairy farms that are just right down the road and, and uh, their profit margins, are, it's a t- completely different game. And then at the same time, you've got regulators coming around looking at your sewage ponds. And um, and so I actually thought that it actually helped create the tension. And I like it when, when you come across things that have natural pace and tension building. Uh, and so just the pressure on a farmer to not only deal with with his his son, who he's suddenly worried is might not be safe in the border patrol, and his wife, who's losing her mind, and at the same time he's got all, all these uh, uh, regulators coming by to see if his dairy farm's going to make it. So, 
So you came across these ingredients, and then they maybe influenced the work itself right. versus having a preset idea of what right. you're writing about. So that's very interesting that you the listening and research that goes in that maybe causes you to fashion a particular work of art. Well, I kind of wish that uh, uh, I, I kind of envy people that have the whole story, uh, you know, allegedly in their mind in advance, and you just go out and execute, you know, build that building that you've drawn up. Um, but th- it's not that way for me. It, it, a lot of it depends because a lot of times I, I find that my designs uh, I can't execute them, or I can't get a character to act that scene, or or whatever it is, and so. Uh, for example, the the kind of research I did on that, I, I wanted Brandon uh, to be the you know the best birder there is out there, and so I went out um, birding with a, a guy who had the record for most species spotted in one day in Whatcom County, and and so I, I'd walk into uh, wooded areas with him, and and he would uh, he could identify a dozen birds just by their sound, and explaining to me how he would do it, and he would, and and just being able to take that energy and put it into the book was kind of what I like to do. Well, speaking of research, maybe we could move on to Truth Like the Sun, which was published in 2011. And the setting is now a city. Right. The city of your birth. Right. And I would imagine there was an enormous amount of research because it was very historically founded because part of it occurred during the World's Fair. Right. So why did you write about that from that standpoint? And then tell us a little bit about how the, what the research led to it. Yeah, sure. Um, so growing up, I mean, Seattle was the, the only big city I knew well. And, you know, in the back of my head, I'd always wanted to write a novel that could capture Seattle as well as possible. And being a kid who used to go to the Seattle Center and, and go on all the rides and, and gawk up at the Space Needle and try to even understand this this World's Fair that that went through, um, it was always kind of uh, this abstract, somewhat untold story. And so then, I, then I just decided that I wanted to look into the the '62 World's Fair more and see if see if it actually was kind of emblematic of the city and captured elements of the city that that would be fun to write about. And so, was it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, for me, for me, it sure was. Um, and. Kind of what what it struck me was that the World's Fair, more than anything, was so audacious of the city to think that they could land it. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if there had been a city that small or that obscure that that landed a World's Fair at that point in time. I mean, I'm far enough removed from the research, I can't remember that, but I, but I doubt that there was ever that small of a city that landed it. And, and it kind of speaks to some of the... Uh, Kind of the 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 bluster and uh, confidence and uh, maybe maybe some of the product of being as isolated as as this city is from from other big cities that it feels like it's um, it it felt like it was bigger than it than it actually was. But any, anyway, it, it it made that big leap and applied for the for the World's Fair and had the uh, gumption of the the main people that were were organizing it to to uh, pull it off. And so then it struck me as kind of, well, it's a metaphor of, of modern Seattle as well and just how ambitious and, and audacious the, uh, the city can be. And then so you created this Roger Morgan right. character, which didn't exist. Right. Um, but why did you need to create a Roger? Well, it's, it's a good question because, I mean, the, there was three guys that were running the fair um, and organized the fair, Eddie Carlson, Joe Gandy and and Dingwall, but but regardless, th- those these three guys. I mean, I, I researched them, but they they weren't the 
they weren't the <laughs> characters that I wanted. I didn't. I wanted to. I wanted to create a character who better represented my version of Seattle. My 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 rendition of Seattle. And so I created uh, Roger Morgan, who I thought had more of the ingredients of of Seattle throughout history, which was that it's you know attractive, charming, and not nearly as wholesome as it seems. Okay, and that's uh-huh. just kind of my my take on the city and and. Uh, I based his name on uh, my two favorite Seattle historians, uh, Roger Sale and Murray Morgan, um, uh, both of whose books uh, helped me greatly in in uh, in kind of trying to capture and understand Seattle. But particularly, I, I think, uh, um, I mean, uh, not that many people perhaps are familiar with Roger Sale's book, to, uh, "The Past and the Present," but Roger Sale was a um, was an outsider who came into Seattle and and kind of almost like a uh, like the the book critic he was, analyzed the history of Seattle and, and the mistakes that were made and the you know and the things that were done well and and Murray Morgan um, was just brilliant at, at capturing early Seattle and just the personalities and the humor and the uh, and the heart of the founders. So the audaciousness of the World's Fair was, um, do you think, an outgrowth of the history, the audaciousness of the city itself? I think that the just you know the early days of 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 it. Growing too fast with with the gold rush, uh, um, and it just made a lot of big leaps. Uh, there's so many dramatic things that the city did. You know, when it reslopes all the land and and uh, um, you know builds over downtown and all these different bigger than life maneuvers that that were made. And you know that it that at a time the Smith Tower was the biggest building in the West, and there were horses in the street, and and, and yet we got to build this tower. Um, and I contrast it in some ways in my mind to, to Portland where I, where I lived for a year and was a writer down there. And, and I would sometimes have to write about the differences between Seattle and Portland. And, and, uh, um, I always feel like Seattle was always trying to look bigger and more important than it is. And Portland was always trying to look less important than it is. You know, it was trying to, it was understated versus overstated. Occasionally, I'll have like a, a a friend or a colleague that that'll come through, and, and they will be non outdoorsy, and they and they're very unimpressed by Seattle uh-huh. if they don't, you know, value the outdoors the way I do. Well, in truth, like the sun, a lot of characters, John Glenn, um, Elvis Presley, right. um, and the quote, the title of the book is based on a quote. From Elvis, right? Yes. Yeah, um, but a number of people, different different people, show up, um, and one of them doesn't show up, which is I think John Kennedy, right? right? He's supposed to show up and then doesn't. Yeah, because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, and it's just great to hear the repartee between Roger and these other people. Not all, all of whom are as impressed, you know, with the city as he is. Yeah, well, and and that was all great fun for me. I mean, because. Uh, uh, yeah, who doesn't want to write a couple scenes with Elvis Presley in his 20s? So one thing that was sort of fascinating about the book is that the, each chapter uh, went back and forward in time. Right. Um, and so what was the time, what was the forward time after the World's Fair, and why did you structure a novel like this? <laughs> to complicate my life. <laughs> um, the uh, uh, So it was set in, in 62 during the fair and, and 2001 uh during the the dot com bust, I don't know if you were around for that. But I was, yeah, yeah, yeah I was. Just but it, it was kind of a uh, it was kind of a reckoning for um, all the ambition of the the dot coms had just emerged, and there was all kinds of ones that didn't really have um, 
it all together and were, were, were kind of destined to fail. And so many of them failed at once. And so I kind of wanted, Seattle has a boom and bust element to it. And, and I wanted that, I wanted that bust to occur. And I, and I also liked the, I wanted to be able to provide, you know, modern Seattle, what it turned into and, and uh, you know, what it was in its adolescence when it, when it attracted the World's Fair. And, and then I also, uh, I liked the bookends of, um, of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and 9-11 is at both coming at the end of these two time periods. Uh, and so they felt like it came to an appropriate climax. So another feature there is this unseemliness of the city. Right. Did that come out of your research? It was a lot of that was news to me that there was so many shenanigans going on yeah, in Pioneer w- Square. Well, there was a, there was a whole lot of... Uh, uh, of illegal gambling going on, and and the way you did illegal gambling is is pay off the cops, and and this was something that had been going on in in uh, throughout the '60s and and in many other cities as well. I mean, it was going on in Portland, um, and I don't I don't know beyond that, but I, I assume it was pretty rampant. And so what I did is I, I basically studied the 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 graft and and the bribes and all that. That I studied the true story of that um, and kind of conflated it to happen more rapidly. I conflated the amount of time so that it could happen in, in the sequence of, of the story and, and uh, gave my main character, uh, Roger, a toe or two in that activity. And he had like a character flaw in the sense that he also enjoyed it. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, and then uh, but so you, you talk about kind of the, the art of mixing fact and fiction. So I was able to conflate that. And, and then uh, as far as, at one point I listed off the, corrupt cops that got uh, busted, and, and they happened to have the exact same names as the uh, fellow wrestlers on my middle school uh, wrestling team. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't feel that I have to be allegiant to the truth. I'm, I'm telling the, the spirit of the story uh, as best I can. Can we shift now to Before the Wind, sure. which was published in 2016, I believe? Correct. And um, the setting is Seattle, Victorian Olympia, but it, really the setting is the water not on land. It's sort of a water-based story. Right. So tell us about uh, the setting and why you wrote about the sort of space between the land masses that make up the Northwest. Well, I, I grew up the uh, um, uh, son of a sailing fanatic. And so it was kind of always, um, it was, it's always been kind of in my head as a writer that I haven't read that many stories about sailing that, that capture kind of the, the difficult to describe, uh, um, experience of sailing and, and, and all the nuances of it. So that, that was kind of one of the, the incentives. I, um, and there's been um, a couple families in Seattle, most notably the Buckins, who, who built sailboats, raced sailboats, and, and just seemed to have kind of this, this magical understanding and gift of how to sail sailboats fast. And so um, all of those kind of ingredients were in play. Plus, I, I just really find um, boatyards uh, where you have these kind of MacGyver mechanics fixing fixing boats and, and marinas where you have people living on tiny boats, but yet they've got the pride of, you know, waterfront property um, and the whole culture that exists in boatyards and marinas. I found all that really rich and interesting. And, I, and so I, I wanted to, uh, you know, immerse the reader in that. And then I specifically... You, you focused on a, it's a working class, it's a people that actually do the work and repairs. It was really from their perspective, but it's a family with a legacy in 
because a lot of us think of sailing as a kind of a rich person's hobby, right? Which is also part of your narrative. Right. Yeah. But the perspective is anything but. You know that your primary characters there were right, mostly poor people that are living on boats. Uh, you know, is, is kind of uh, a large part of the cast of characters. And one of the things that was intriguing to me is that uh, uh, I I tried to get it as detailed precise as I could for like a a, a very um, funky, offbeat, uh, dilapidated marina in Olympia. Um, and so that that was kind of the, the model from which I was was creating it. But uh, um, I traveled to, to France with this book and I would get people that would come up to me, you know, these people that lived aboard their boats and marinas in France and said, you captured our marina. And huh. uh, it, it, there's, a, there's a pretty universal dynamic to marina lifestyle and, and boatyards. So this is a book, it sums a little bit more out of your life, your own personal life. So did it require the same level of research or was it more a function of um, research that had already come from living compared to, say, Truth Like the Sun? Yes, but at the same time, I, want, uh, I used it as an excuse to understand sailing better and, and did all kinds of research and interviewing you know, terrific sailors and, and uh, boatyard mechanics that uh, helped me out. So I, I did all the uh, uh, research, and then I also uh, I wove uh, Albert Einstein into the book a bit. And Why? Um, because I, it just in, in kind of my manic research, I, I was looking around at, at uh, famous people who loved to sail, and Einstein kept popping up. And so then I just kind of narrowed it down and read everything that's ever been written about Einstein and his his fascination with sailing, and you know the fact that he was a that he was a poor sailor. I really liked because you know here's the master of physics, our, our genius of physics, who gets befuddled by the physics of sailing and couldn't swim. So he he seemed like just uh, kind of a, a a fun mascot, you know, for the book. Any other connection between your own childhood and this novel? Well, that book and, and The Highest Tide were um, in part both based on the early childhood memories of leaving uh, Lake Washington, going through the Montlake Cut, and going out through the locks and dropping down into Puget Sound. And it always kind of seemed like, uh, you know, Alice going through the looking glass or, you know, into the wardrobe for The, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where you drop down into this magical world where, where suddenly you had crabs and starfish and, and uh, seals and whales and so on. And so that whole dynamic of, of, of going through the cut and, and, and going out into the sound was always, it always just struck me as like good natural storytelling. And I was always fascinated by that whole strip. And so to have the family have their boat manufacturing be there right there on the cut was always a very believable thing for me, you know. So we ask our guests to share a place that matters to them. But in your case, before you do that, I'd like to actually go through your work, you know, uh, each of the novels in their setting. And if you could share a real place in each of those places that you care about and maybe that our listeners aren't aware of. So in Olympia, is there a place that really matters to you more than others in Olympia, Well, th- that, that's uh, uh, one and the same, both for the novel and for kind of the most precious place in my mind, and that is, that is Eld Inlet. It's, it's one inlet west of uh, downtown Olympia, um, which is on Bud Inlet. And I've just sailed and kayaked and beach walked that place so many times. 
that I know its depths, you know, throughout the whole bay so that I don't run aground when I'm sailing. And I, I know exactly how far the tidal flats go out in each direction. And I know what it's like on a, on a day when, when the tide rises, you know, 18 feet. Um, so we see these incredibly high tides and these incredibly low tides because it's at the bottom of the sound. So it, it's more extreme down there. Up here at, in Seattle, it's more like, you know, 12 foot tides. Huh. And yet it still has uh, oysters growing on the beach that you can eat. It's, it's right next to bustling civilization, but yet it's still wild enough that it's healthy. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, and, and there's, a, there's two different salmon runs that come right down into, into the inlet that are strong, but, you know, in jeopardy. Uh, so it, it's a very precious place. And I've seen it, uh, you know, at all different uh, tides and all different weathers. And, um, and so I feel like uh, it's a personal place. What about Blaine? What, where's a place that matters to you kind of in the border area that our guests could enjoy hearing about? Well, there's just one strip where there literally is a drainage ditch that separates the two countries. And on one side, there's a um, Canadian road. And on the other side of the ditch, there's an American road going along parallel. And, and they both have houses back, you know. Uh, and so it, it seems like almost a comic setting. And so when that book was turned into a play, you know, they just kind of created that setting on the stage that this this is the ditch over which, you know, the Canadians are arguing with the Americans. And, um, but it, it's, it's just to go along that ditch and realize that these two countries mm. are friendly neighbors and yet have this bizarre relationship and are quite distinctly different. It's fun to go up there and gawk at it. Is there a wall along there? Or it's just, you no, could just there's step no across wall. The, could you step over the ditch? Oh, or? absolutely. Sure. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Right. Seattle, um, thinking about your third novel, where's a place that matters to you here in Seattle? Pike Place Market is always, it's an easy one for me um, because I was a, in college, I was a, a security guard um, there briefly, not at the market, but at uh, a condo tower where I was down in the, in the basement there. Huh. But I was, uh, I was stuck uh, in these booths from like 10 p.m. to 10 a.m., and it's kind of where I started realizing that I was a, a writer because that's the way I would spend my time is, is you know, writing little fictional stories. Oh. And so, uh, yeah, I kind of, I kind of credit that, that security job that I didn't care for and the location of Pike Place Market is realizing what I wanted to do. And then before the wind, it seemed like the setting there was Olympia, but is there any place that comes to mind that matters to you? It doesn't need to be make an appearance in the novel, but... I did a race on a boat out of Victoria into uh, the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And in the, the leaving and, and coming back to Victoria, I, I, I guess I've just, uh, I've really become fond of Victoria over the years. I think it's kind of the most exciting little city around here. And so for me, it was a pleasure to write scenes in and around Victoria. Okay. Yeah. Right. So you are currently working on a new novel. That's right. And yeah. anything that you're able to or willing to share? Well, I try not to say too much about what I'm working on because I always feel like it has the chance to jinx it. But sure. uh, uh, I'm just not really uh, um, the sort of writer who likes to write uh, the same characters. But I am bringing one character back. I'm bringing back uh, Miles O'Malley from The Highest Tide huh. as a grown-up whale researcher um, in this book that uh, is centered around whale research and whales and uh kind of my growing fascination with whales. I've been pouring all my research into whales for the last year or two. And um, the novel's kind of coming to a boil, and I kind of hope it captures 
the exciting world of whale science and uh, and kind of the ongoing revelations about what we're learning about whales. Wow, exciting. Well, thank you, Jim, for being our guest today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. To learn more about Jim's work, you can visit his website, jimlynchbooks.com. And join us next time when our guest will be Michael Hoover. Michael grew up in Woodway, Washington, and experienced an unanchored life, resulting in a life sentence, which he served at the Coyote Ridge Correction Center in eastern Washington. And after 20 years, he received clemency from the governor of Washington. He was released from prison and entered a very different world. Thank you for joining us today. Daniel Gunther is our sound engineer. Photography by Brandon Williams. Production support from Mary Barbour. Theme music written by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grant Hallway. Incidental music by Ryan Hunt. We are recording at Seattle's historic Jack Straw Cultural Center, just steps away from the boatyards of Portage Bay and Lake Union. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>